The year is 2009. And hey, Paul, it smells like Thai food in here. Have you been podcasting? The movie, Jennifer's Body. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear. Today we are talking about Jennifer's body as we get into our month of horror. And Amy, wow, I am still reeling from the <laughs> tongue lashings that I got from the fans of Hellraiser. I would say that conservatively, after our episode of Hellraiser, it was about a 60-40 split. 60% were about on my side that, oh, yeah, Hellraiser didn't do it for me. And then 40% were on your side. Hellraiser's amazing. But not only is it amazing, I'm a moron. Fuck oh. Paul Shear. I'm never <laughs> trusting Paul Shear again. Paul Shear only has sex missionary style. Paul doesn't get it. Like, it was the vitriol I got for not... <laughs> enjoying or considering Hellraiser a masterpiece of cinema, the loud 40% were vicious, unlike any other episode. And um, I'm going to take this uh, to them right now. I want to say one thing to them. Um, this version of S&M that you're all excited about, that you think that I don't get, is fucking Olive Garden SM. Okay. <laughs> you all think that you're all cool and like, oh yeah, we get SM. You don't. You're looking at the like the person in the window of the sex shop in uh, an outfit and going, woohoo. And I'm inside those places. Okay. I'm inside and I'm seeing it for real. You know what? Take your bullshit. I don't buy it. It wasn't on the screen. Don't tell me to read a fucking short story. Don't tell me, oh, he's a genius or there's a comic book that explains this. We watch the movie. It's a movie podcast. End of story. Done. It's a Clive Barker podcast. You could come bring me all that heat. But as someone said articulately, Clive Barker, great with the ideas, not so great with putting them down on paper. And you know what? That was echoed by so many people. It's not scary. And now, as a matter of fact, after this 40% came after me so hard, I'm going to go harder on this movie because of it. Uh, I will watch the new Hellraiser, which I've also seen decidedly incredibly mixed reviews. It's like, yeah, she's good. The rest of the movie's okay. Eh, it's fine. I loved it. The best Hellraiser ever. And it also seems like when you're saying it's the best since the original, like, is that really a, a high bar? To cross, it seems like there's only one good Hellraiser and like nine terrible ones. And for you to go like, oh, this is so good. It's like, it just seems like it was the only one that was put in capable hands. That was not just a cash grab. Anyway, um, I will point out that someone did mention that uh, Clive Barker was playing on the concepts of uh, melodrama and soap opera of the time. And I thought actually that was a really interesting point of view. And I like that actually, that idea that, could you do like a a more of a, a supernatural soap opera? And and I and looking at it through that lens was really interesting to me. 
There was that soap opera. Passions. That, remember Passions? Passions? Yes. I loved Passions. I love Passions. Passions, Passions is was great. wonderful. I remember Passions got really into this idea of tomato soup cake. And every character <laughs> kept talking about tomato soup cake like it was a thing. Well, and you know, uh, Passions was one of those shows that I feel like really took advantage of early internet. Like people were passing along clips of it, like out of context clips. Uh, and it was really something that people knew about, even if they didn't watch. And I think it was like sticky in that way. Like I think soap operas are hard to, to connect to if you don't watch them all. I think now we've replaced them with like the real housewives on Bravo, but like the old soap operas, like I think they felt so kind of stayed at that point and passions was so exciting. I mean, dark shadows is kind of in the same vein, like kind of a more melodramatic supernatural or, or vampiric uh, kind of soap opera. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking of, it's not melodramatic at all, but there's a lot of like threats of violence. My soap, did you ever watch soap? Oh yeah. Like, yeah. The old of one from the seventies. I, I guess I really have a deep passion, honestly, for soap opera send ups. Cause I love, I love big emotions and those shows yeah. are all about big emotions. And I feel this and my grandmother is a demon and tomato soup cake is delicious. <laughs> and, and it is ravishing. But now as I was hearing you talk about your week under attack, I was thinking Twitter really is like each tweet is a tiny little hook digging into a skin and then for um, you get pulled up. By the way, that's my pleasure and pain. I enjoyed engaging with the people <laughs> who are calling me a moron. One dude called me a moron and I went to go look at his uh, his Twitter page and it was all about commenting on how hot the local weather person was in his area. And I was like, OK. Uh, you can't be calling me a moron when the majority of your tweets are about, uh, you know, San Diego's finest uh, local newscaster here. Like, let's let's pull it back. Um, I also thought there was a really interesting point that someone brought up about the smell of vanilla. You brought that up when we talked about Hellraiser, that that's what the Cenobites smelled like and or that's what they the room kind of transformed into. And someone pointed out that vanilla is often um, a flavor that can go with savory and sweet. So it's this idea of mixing, again, pleasure and pain. Vanilla is this uh, this spice that can kind of bring you huh. to both sides. You know, if I thought that there was like a spice that really went both sides, I would say lemon zest. I wish I wish, I wish, wish they smelled mm. like lemon zest. No, lemon is never sweet, though, unless it's candied, I feel like. Oh, really? I mean, Even you'd I'm have a, a bitterness. You'd have a bitter. I mean, I like it. I'm just saying it's not as sweet Pleasure as and pain. Lemon meringue. It, <laughs> it, it announces its, its intentions Key lime pie, the, the food of the Cenobites. Um, but Wait, apparently, what if the Cenobites smelled like pumpkin spice? I mean, because I mean, pumpkin spice month. literally goes on everything right now. I mean, pumpkin, it, it's like pumpkin spice nachos, pumpkin spice. Once a year, we, we uh, dive in. Uh, but I'll say this, too. I, I think that the... The world that Clive Barker has created definitely, to me, is what I think people are really reacting to. That there is so much more there that it could produce nine more sequels. It could produce these comic books. Um, and I do want to give this new Hellraiser film a chance because I do think it's an interesting world. And what I've been reading from people's reviews, and I know you saw it as well, it is like kind of a more realized version and a, a reboot, but also a way to incorporate a lot of the things that people like about the Hellraiser franchise uh, out of the gate instead of, you know, kind of dribs and drabs of it all along. Um, so I'm not against the Hellraiser franchise, but I am surprised at the passion 
of the Hellraiser fan base. I mean, I was not expecting to be attacked. I knew that I was, you know, walking into an area where I probably would be offending some, but the allegiance to this world and these characters really was surprising. And I and I have to say, uh, going back to my Olive Garden of S and M, um, when you're here, you want to fuck family. Um, the uh, <laughs> the idea that uh, I saw in this movie that I feel like wasn't really executed was in the sex. Like, yes, the sex was, you know, this fleshy zombie man she was having sex with, but their sex wasn't even exciting in that way. It was very staid. I think I was thinking about that as well. Like, we don't even get to see these other ideas, these these, you know, the ideas of S&M are really just pulled to this one vision of hooks in and skin being ripped off. Like we don't see, you know, kinky sex in this movie at all to be like, oh, I don't like that. It's it, the kinkiness is just that he's like a, a, a flesh skeleton. You know, that's interesting because one thing I didn't get to mention in the episode was that when Clive Barker was going back and forth with the MPA trying to get like a good rating. Right. In one of the sexual encounters between Frank and Julia, back when Frank was like alive and still had skin uh, in the flashback sequences, Clive had shot a scene where it was very, very clear that Frank was uh, doing Julia up the butt by surprise. Okay. And oh, the M- interesting. Yeah. And the MPA was like, absolutely not. And he was like, okay, can I have him cut her slip with a switchblade? And they're like, yes, totally fine. And he was sort of irritated by that. He's like, why is the sex sex too much? But this, you know, the assembled fight, but like the threat of violence is totally fine. Hmm. And so he was putting that out as like a moment of like MPA again, having befuddling, strange puritanical rules. Yeah, because I also think about that scene where he, you know, slices open the rat while she's having sex. I don't feel that is like a kinky thing. I feel like that's him trying to get in her head. But if they were having sex and they're also doing that, I mean, not that that's something, yes, if that's normal to most people, I'm not dissecting uh, rats while having sex. So yes, I am vanilla, I guess, in that way. But if you did incorporate that into sex, I'd be like, oh, this is interesting. Like mixing in this idea of like a blood of a rat or sex. I, I just felt like the concepts were a little bit more elevated than the movie would allow it to show. That's that's really where I've landed on this, because like, I feel like everyone came at me so hard that I'm like, well, what are you all seeing? And I think what I'm realizing from all these discussions and tweets on the Discord and, and on Twitter and on Instagram uh, and you know, people are like I'll never trust Paul again is that <laughs> everyone has given so much to this world that it's hard to to accept someone coming in. It's like I came over to your house and I'm like, oh, nice clock. And they're like, it's not a clock. That was my grandfather's, uh, you know, masterpiece that he made in the garage. And we all look at it once a year on his birthday because it's set to the time of his death. I'm like, well, to me, it just looks like a clock because you didn't tell me anything about it. And then someone said, well, I like it because there's no backstory. I'm like, well, that's really hard for me because there's no backstory or exposition you got to let me in on some level. You got to bring me in. Like I, I want, I want to be, I want to be engaged. Just give me a morsel. Say, Hey, look, this is my clock. My grandfather made it. We, you know, we set it to the time of his death. Oh, that's interesting. And then I won't say it's a clock, but if you just put it on the wall, I'm like, it's a clock. I want to make sure that I'm clear on your point. Your point is that 
You watched Hellraiser, found it to be the Olive Garden of S&M, because you, Paul Shear, are like the authentic restaurant in Naples that makes its own dough from scratch of S&M? No, I'm, I, no. Look, my, uh, I think when people go, it, when people were coming at me like, you just don't get S&M and you have, you've never had sex out of missionary position, which is such a hilarious takeaway from my review of Hellraiser. But I'm like, is that S&M to you? Is that like sexy, dangerous sex to you? If it is, that's Olive Garden of sex, that movie. Like, so yeah, in that context, then yeah, I'm come to Naples. Uh, but that's that that sex is not like look, there's so many other movies with so much more interesting sex that doesn't even have to be SM related. But that movie, I don't think of that movie as sexy. Now like, I'm at just all. imagining like Pinhead and Butterball. And everybody like standing in front of the hallway of wood slatted doom, welcoming you in and saying, when you're here, you're family. Uh, so anyway, I, I wanted to get that out. Uh, but you've seen the new Hellraiser. And what's I your. Not, I have oh. not yet. Oh, okay. no. Yeah. No. Yeah. I have not yet seen the, the new Hellraiser. All right. Maybe we can, uh, you know, if we can fit it into our, our busy movie watching schedules, we can. Uh, uh, reconvene <laughs> and keep this this debate going to enrage our fan base even more. Uh, I am game but, for that. We should also talk, if we're going to just say anything about passion and cinema that happened this week, we have to at least say, dude, we went to a screening of RRR mm -hmm. at the big Chinese, the grand Chinese, the classic yes. Chinese theater here in LA. IMAX screen sold out for RRR. 900 well, people. And when we walked in, they were like on their feet. They were dancing. They were screaming at the movie. They were dancing in front of the screen. We were there to do the Q&A with Raja Muli, which was like the greatest honor. And, and we like walked in front of the theater and there's just people dancing there as he's walking in. I have never been in a theater that was that mental, that excited, that crazy about what they had just watched. It was the first IMAX screening of RRR Um that Raja Muli has ever seen. He saw one other screening in New York, but this is the second screening that he had seen in the States. It was an amazing night. Um, and I know that you went the next day to see like the 10 hour, uh, three film uh, retrospective of Raja Muli. I want to get into that in a second, but it was amazing to have so many people in the crowd. We went to the crowd a lot. You can watch the 40 minute Q and A uh, on the Beyond Fest Instagram page. And I think at one point they will kind of release a, a cleaner version of it because they had a lot of cameras shooting it. And the one that is on the Beyond Fest page is not uh, high quality at all. I will also say that the the really interesting thing about that was that is the night that RRR officially launched its Oscar campaign. I mean, as of this week, it is submitting itself for consideration in all categories. And as of this recording, Variety just wrote a giant article about how Not To Not To might be the perfect song to win uh, best song at the Oscars. It's exactly what the Oscars need, that kind of energy, that kind of different, you know, uh, than a Pixar, Disney, family-friendly song at the Oscars. And I, I mean, I can't... I can't agree more. I mean, I, I think that this movie definitely has a chance to be in that grouping of best picture. Absolutely. I think it would be amazing if Raja Muli gets a nomination for director. But I think right now, we're months away. There's so many good ones out there. I think best picture and best song are 
close to locks for RRR. Oh, I love that. For Do you think, I mean, is that possible? I mean, because you are part think, of these LA Film Critics Association. Like, you are weighing in on this stuff. I think it is possible. I feel, you know, I, in my critic groups that I'm in, we usually vote before the Oscar nominations are out. And we kind of take that really seriously because I feel like we try to, like, winnow, highlight, point out things that people really should be paying attention to. And it, and it helps. It feels like it's all sort of building momentum for things like making Parasite become in position to be, like, a best picture contender. And... I know that at least within my critics group, there is much, much, much love for RRR. And it's hard for me to imagine that it will be forgotten by our group and we will not be pushing it forward as something that must be paid attention to. And I have to say that looking at what has come out of TIFF, um, there's only really a handful of movies. I think right now there are a few contenders. Best picture contenders are interesting. I think that Everyone is saying that Fablemans, which is the new Steven Spielberg movie, is just everything that you wanted it to be. It's like uh, cinema paradiso, but via Spielberg. And I'm so excited to see it. And everyone I've talked to is like, it's, it is what you've wanted. Always, it's like probably the most personal in the sense of autobiographical Steven Spielberg that we'll probably ever get, you know, even though that we see his his life through his films, whether it's E.T. or, uh, you know, things like that, where he's put a lot of his childhood in film. But this is definitely a larger version of that. But I do think that looking at the slate and, you know, obviously Top Gun Maverick is going to probably get in there for best picture. I have a feeling that that's, <laughs> I, I, I feel like it, it can't not. Then after you look at those two, it's a different race. There's a, a lot of best actress conversation going on. There's a lot of best actor conversation going on. Uh, you know, this Will Smith movie, Emancipation, there's a lot of talk about that right now because he can get nominated. He just can't go to the award show. And, and that's an Antoine Fuqua movie. So there's a lot there's a lot there. But I feel like RRR is a complete film that I think has taken a lot of people by storm. And a lot of people have not even heard of it yet. And I believe that it will grow in these next coming months. I believe it will, too. I believe it will, too. I, I know that we have a big episode to come into, but how was the, uh, the not the trilogy, but the three-film, 10-hour <laughs> extravaganza? Uh, it was uh, Baba Huli, right? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Baba uh, yeah. Baba Bab- 1 and 2. And, and then Iga. The Fly. Iga yeah. is uh, his, like, remake of The Fly, right? Iga is amazing. Iga's kind of, Iga's like a, an action comedy about a guy who's in love with a girl and this gangster is also kind of in love with the girl and the gangster kills the guy and the guy gets reborn as a housefly and decides to somehow kill this gangster even though he is just a little housefly. So many people are telling me we should do it on how did this get made. (laughs) I mean, it is amazing. I will say that Iga has probably the greatest theme song I have ever read the subtitles to in my entire life where I was just like howling howling at the lyrics absolutely howling for that alone I would recommend it and uh and you know a lot of people say that uh Baba Booey is uh not Baba Booey from Howard Stern (laughs) uh but uh is is really maybe even better than RRR it is more substantial in a lot of ways it's like a two-part film about um again kind of like um the rising up and overthrowing of like a regime but it uh it's not as out there as RRR. It's just like very solid and great and big and great action. It's more like 300 in okay. a way. Um, it, it doesn't have as many like fighting tigers and gazelles 
It, it, it's it's uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I'm asking you about it, but I did actually watch it. And I'm like, yeah, I, I really liked it. But I think RRR captures something a little bit more special. Like there is something impressive about those two movies. But RRR is kind of a I don't know, like it takes everything that you love and it amps it up even more. Uh, in my opinion, like, I, you know, I, I, I don't see it being, I don't know. It, like it's, it's, it's what your taste is. I, I understand though, why RRR translates a little bit more because there are a lot of Western themes in RRR that I think are not necessarily in that other one as or the other two. I think like the friendship dynamic in RRR just makes it so special. Mm-hmm. Like this, these two best guy friends who love each other with such sincerity. And I also think, you know, I've been really trying to like articulate to myself what makes an RR, what makes RRR feel so different and so special compared to something like Avengers Endgame. And mm-hmm. what I keep kind of coming down to is that there's just nothing in RRR that feels insincere at all. And like my big problem with the Avengers movies has always been like the world is about to end and oh my God, and here we are and we're rallying together and can we save it? And these gigantic moments are happening. But at the same time, Tony Stark always makes some sort of like sarcastic quip or they're always like undercutting its own bigness, almost like it's embarrassed, you know, like big moment saved you snarky quip. And I think there's something in the majesty of RRR never going for the snarky quip, just letting the moment be big, letting the friends care about each other in ways larger than life. That just feels so wonderful to me because I'm, I'm tired of always having to kind of be back on my heels in our spectacle movies, like lean in and think it's great. Oh, but you know, Bop, bop, bop. We're going to deflate it just a little bit because we can't handle big emotion in this country. And so RRR just like dives into emotion so fully. I totally agree. And, you know, I think the one question that people kept on asking the Q&A is how do you do these scenes? And and the one takeaway that he said, and I don't think people found this to be fulfilling enough. Like, I think they wanted him to break down shot by shot how he did it. But I thought he said something so interesting. He was like, Every action scene has to be driven by emotion. And he talked about the dynamic between his dad and him in creating these scenes. And he said his dad creates the emotion behind it and he creates the visuals that match the emotion. And 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 furthermore, he also talked about his job as a director. We asked him, like, what's your advice? The classic kind of question you ask directors and writers, you know, what's your advice to people out there that have their idea? And they want to do it. And he, he said one thing that I thought was great, which is just do it. Just jump in. You'll either succeed or fail. And that's life. And I love that idea. It's not precious, which is kind of great. And he also said, you know, as a director, his only job is to entertain, not to educate, not to, uh, you know, not to give you something to think about, but just to entertain. And I, I think that there are great directors out there that can do those other things and mix it in with entertaining. But I love that his core goal is to give you an amazing time. And I have to say that watching those 900 people watch that movie, watching people dance in the aisles, watching a, a, a screening that was unlike truly anything I've ever seen in a theater. And I saw Endgame on opening weekend. I saw the trailer for Star Wars, uh, Phantom Menace, you know, after Meet Joe Black at the Ziegfeld where everyone was online just to watch a trailer. I've been in opening nights of so many big, big films. This blew it out of the water. Nothing was like this. And it truly is one of the most entertaining films 
of all time. I, I really do believe it is just in that audience experience. It is truly fascinating. It is Maverick times 10. <laughs> Put it back on the API list. Uh, yeah, you know, and look, look, I, I, I held it off the API list or we held it off the API list because um, we were like, it's too soon. I think that that's just been something that we've talked about, this idea of like, mm -hmm. Do we do we just put it on? And and to me, I am very open to putting it on, but I also feel like it's always good to wait a year. You know, I think that, you know, I go back to what you said, Amy, too, which was like, uh, you know, when we were talking about that Boots Riley film, you know, uh, a couple of years ago with Lakeith Stanfield. Yeah, like, sorry to bother you. Yeah. I love that movie. I don't know if it has a sustained cultural relevance that it did at that moment at that point. So I do think it's always good to just get a little bit more, uh, like a little bit more, you know, runway away from it before you talk about it. Like the same way it's like, I think it's, you need it to get out of the zeitgeist to evaluate if it belongs permanently in the zeitgeist, if that makes sense. It does. And I think I would have agreed with you wholeheartedly last year, mm -hmm. but suddenly this year I'm like, I think everything everywhere all at once is automatically going on the API list and so I want to make a go. case for it. So now I'm like there I'm we going go. back on my own tenants. And also uh, tenant, let's put tenant on. Let's not put tenant on. Uh, <laughs> look, I think there's so many fun movies out there and I saw that you did a Q&A with them as well. Uh, I don't know if you asked them about when they directed NTSF for a handful of episodes, but you know, uh, <laughs> they, they, they're great. Uh, I actually posted uh, one of the clips up from uh, an episode of NTSF that you could kind of see a little bit of the of what you see in uh, their film in NTSF. They, they are just great visual filmmakers and I love that movie too. But again, I like to let things sit for a year. Let's put it like, Josh, put it on the list as a pin and go like next year, let's talk about it. And one year, let's talk about where it is. A year after the Oscars, a year after all these big things. Let's see what we're feeling. Okay, simmer. I like the tension of a simmer. We can simmer. And speaking of simmering, you know, maybe the best way to do a simmer is in a cauldron. And when you have a cauldron, you know, you might want to call forth some spirits. And when you call forth some spirits, you have to unspool it. The year is 2009. The United States suffers the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression in the 1930s. The World Health Organization declares the H1N1 swine flu a global pandemic. Oh, how sweet that was. Somali pirates take down Captain Phillips' cargo ship and geese in the engine take down Captain Sully's plane. What a year. Barack Obama. What a Obama. year for Tom Hanks and his future career. Oh my gosh, you're right. That's two Tom Hanks films right there. And Barack Obama is inaugurated the 44th president of the United States. This year's unspooled movies include Dogtooth, The Hangover, and now Jennifer's Body. Uh, Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? All right. Well, Jennifer's Body, it is directed by Karen Kusama. It is written by Diablo Cody. And it is the story of two childhood best friends. There's Jennifer. She's the school beauty. She's played by Megan Fox. And Needy, she's played by Amanda Seyfried. She's the follower who mostly does everything Jennifer wants. Like going to a bar to see this band called Low Shoulder so that Jennifer can hook up with the singer who's played by Adam Brody. But at this bar, 
Disaster strikes. When the bar's roof catches on fire, the band whisks Jennifer away to the woods where they murder her with a knife, believing that if they kill a virgin, their loser band will become super famous. But Jennifer is not a virgin. She returns as a succubus who gains strength and beauty by eating boys, kind of adding to this trauma that their small town is already reeling from. You know, trauma that has made Low Shoulders' Sympathy Ballad a big hit. Um, Technically, Jennifer might be able to eat like all humans, but she very much just wants to eat boys. And that puts a wedge in her friendship with Needy when Jennifer decides that Needy's boyfriend Chip might be a good snack. Take a listen. You and me are going out tonight. Wear something cute, okay? You always do what Jennifer tells you to do. It's just that I like the same things that she likes. Hey, Jennifer. You look really pretty. Why don't you just come by my place? Well, this is random. This isn't really your house, is it? We can play mommy and daddy. No way. <sighs> we always share your bed when we have slumber parties. Jennifer's evil. I know. No, I mean, she's actually evil, not high school evil. Jennifer's Body was released on September 18th, 2009, and it tanked for a lot of reasons that we're going to get into in this episode. And honestly, like hearing even that list of the films that we covered, you know, like this was the hangover year. Culture was kind of rough in 2009. Uh, And as evidence, I think uh, we need to look no further then to the number one song on the charts on September 18th, 2009, which by coincidence or zeitgeist magic also talks about roofs being on fire. But here it's like roofs being on fire leads to a totally great time for everybody. I gotta say, Paul, when we started this podcast, I didn't realize how much we'd have to be playing the Black Eyed Peas. They had well, a number like, one song for so many, many, many You years. always say it, and I disagreed with you for so many years. You said, you know, the Black Eyed Peas are the new Beatles, and I'm like, Amy, I think that's a really bold <laughs> statement, but you just keep on repeating it, and now you're kind of proving uh, to be right. Um, I mean, I gotta know, say, when I watched that video for the Black Eyed Peas, I was like, oh, this is, a, it's kind of like how they marketed Jennifer's body. It's just like... Girls in miniskirts, Fergie, like, bending over a lot, uh, random hot girls making out for, like, a male gaze. I was like, okay, this is this this all tracks. This all fits. But I will say that this movie, Jennifer's Body, I'm so excited to talk to you about because it's a movie that really was off my radar until about last year. We were talking about movies we wanted to do for our horror month, and we were debating Jennifer's Body. And I just wanted to watch it because I'd been hearing so much about it. I heard about it from you and Devin and Josh. Everyone was really pushing this movie forward. And I was initially kind of turned off to the film. And I don't know why, but I think in doing my research about the film, the reason why I didn't want to watch it was exactly the reason why this movie kind of failed at the box office. The marketing was really trashy. Like it was really, and maybe this is a a bad way of putting it, but like Transformers meets horror. And I don't know, that's unfair for me to classify Megan Fox as Transformers, but it was like, it was, it felt a little porny though. The posters, it just, it just didn't look like it was for me. And then hearing how the studio totally mismarketed this movie just con- blows me away. They literally pushed away people from this film. Yeah, it's really fascinating to go back to this headspace of like 2009 when marketing executives were convinced that like 
young men drove the box office, like specifically like men 18 to 18 to 24 were like the only people worth marketing to. And they just believed it wholeheartedly for some reason. And, and in a way we're like, to me, this film, one of the most interesting things to really kind of like dig into about it, is it, is this movie as like a case study of just marketing gone awry. And in the years since the film has come out, like Everybody involved in it, Diablo Cody, uh, Karen Kusama, have been more open and talking about exactly what happened and how strange it was. Like, here's um, here's Diablo talking about, like, her first experience just even talking to these marketing team people. Because obviously something went in a very wrong direction. Yeah. And where was that coming from? Well, the test screenings were, were horrible. And I believe that's because of the audiences that were recruited mm -hmm. for the screenings. Which were Be like frat boys? Exactly. The studio had a very strong, unshakable belief that this movie needed to be marketed to young men, specifically. So that was who they... Which came because of me, I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, I got a very memorable email from <laughs> from a, um, a marketing person at the studio once, mm -hmm. where I, I you know, had sent him this articulate defense of the film, and here is how it should be marketed. And I, I said, "What specifically are you thinking?" And he wrote back, "Megan Fox hot," three words. For so they a trailer together. That just was for marketing in terms of in, general? in terms of what is the value of this film. Um, so there was there was a test screening that a kid wrote. They said, what would you improve about this film? And the kid wrote, needs more boobs, and spelled um, boobs, B-E-W-B-S. <laughs> um, and that was the data that was collected and taken seriously yeah. by the people who were marketing the movie. I mean, more boobs, more boobs, misspelled more boobs. And this is the audience that they're chasing, being like, this is exactly how it goes. This is like who we need to get into the theater. And I didn't see this movie opening weekend because I had that same feeling of like, oh, I guess it's just like a bro tits out movie with women. Like it didn't seem like a movie about female friendship to me, which is, which it is because the female friendship wasn't any of the TV, TV spots. Like the TV spots kind of played out more like this. Where are we going? for dad. They killed you. I'm still here, aren't I? Something inside Jennifer was unleashed on September 18th. Are you scared? No, boy. Revenge is sweet. I'm not gonna bite you. Jennifer's body. You want it? Rated R. We were just like, yeah, Megan Fox is hot. Come see this movie because Megan Fox is hot. And I was like, she is hot. But I don't know if I want to prioritize that. I didn't know that this was a movie that I wanted to see. Well, I think, you know, one of the things I remember about this movie, and again, it goes to this marketing of it, was there were like these leaked stills, like these paparazzi shots of her naked in the forest, like maybe coming out of like the water, which... I don't even think is in the film. It is in the film when she's swimming in that lake, but not the image that we saw of it, right? So it was all kind of about like this, in, in many ways, what this movie is commenting on is like the objectification of a woman's body, right? And like how, you know, a woman is only her body, is exactly how this movie was marketed, right? So it was like this idea of like, come to the theater and see some sweet boobs, like Megan Fox, is she going to be naked in it? Like, and what they got, 
I think, creeped out the people who were there because she is this literal man eater. Uh, and it's it's almost like a rev- like a, a rape revenge movie in a way like it has those similarities to it. But it's even uh, more I think it's more scary because it's it's really emasculating on top of it being a revenge film, too. So I think it turned away like the the male audience who was going in for just like the titillation aspect of it. Yeah, that was the thing that Karen like kind of kept trying to tell the marketing team. Like her quote on this is like, I kept reminding everybody, quote, guys, we cannot market this movie to boys and then have them go to the theater expecting one thing and then seeing Megan Fox not really take off her clothes, but rip a guy's intestines out and eat them. She's like, that is like the guaranteed way that they're we're going to get like bad reviews because we're like not delivering on what they think they're going to see. And what you're talking about, about these lake shots, like, yeah, that was part of this crazy frenzy around this movie, around Megan Fox at this time, that they're shooting the scene. And like, as she describes it, she was swimming in this lake. She was doing the scene. And she um, said she felt kind of like almost a psychic vibration that there was somebody in the woods taking creep shots of her. And she was right. There was like a paparazzi guy who was hiding in the woods during her filming this scene where she's swimming. And like, she found out about it because the shots were put on the internet and her agent called her and was like, okay, here you are topless looking topless because she's got like kind of um nipple covers on right and her having kind of a breakdown in the middle of shooting this movie because she was like i have no privacy i thought at least like controlling who saw my body was the one thing i had control over and then losing that during the making of this film and just like kind of having she's she's referred to that period in her life in the making of this film and the delivery of it as like a breakdown like it was just like the sudden pressure and fame and people staring at her all the time and taking photos of her without her permission and kind of feeling really exhausted. She said like her way of dealing with it was that she kind of started to become like the Jennifer Check person that she is in this film, kind of like tough, brassy, always talking about sex because she was trying to cover up how raw she felt and that she felt like she was just sort of being the darkest part of her shadow to deal with all of the insanity of her, what her fame was like in 2009. And I think that 2009 is an interesting point in the world, right? Because this movie feels like it probably would have been better served seven years later. I don't even know. I mean, it it kind of popped in popularity around the Me Too era, right? Like it, it kind of came in because it starts to label things that I think we're much more in tune with. And I talked earlier about uh, Raja Muli saying, my job is to entertain, right? Not to teach. But I think this movie does an amazing job at creating a really great horror story. It's scary. It's fun. It's incredibly well-written. And at the same time, it's commenting on all of these things. And I think it's very subconscious. It doesn't feel preachy. It doesn't feel over the top. I think what it what it feels like to me in watching it is like, oh, wow, there's so much meat on the bone here. Where do we even want to jump in? Even in this conversation, I'm like, you could even just jump in and talk for a long time about the uh, commodification of tragedy, right? Because the opening of this movie is going to see this band. uh, they, They get into this situation where the club that they're going to see this band in burns down, which happened to the Great White. Uh, that they were playing this club, uh, a fire broke out, and many people died in this this tragedy. You know, being trapped in this kind of small, shitty venue, and that's one of the opening scenes of this film, 
we'll get to the real opening scene, but, but this idea of, you know, how a town reacts to tragedy, how people react to tragedy, how celebrity is made out of tragedy. And that is to me, such an astute look forward at the culture that we're living in, you know, and I think that we saw that after 9-11 a little bit and we just continue to see it. Like we want to, you know, embrace tragedy. One of the things that I love about it is there's like a line that the, the band is making a song, like a tribute song to the, the victims of the fire and uh, the, the families that were affected get 3% of the profits, 3%. And it was like such a fun line and and you know and uh Amanda Sidfried kind of calls it out but i think that that even concept wise is a, just a little bit ahead of its time like we are a lot more aware of the way the world works i think this movie uh and i think Diablo Cody has always kind of been you know at that front line of seeing what may be interesting not just in the now but in the future i think you can i think that Juno has like life like that too about the debate of you know, abortion and pregnancy that comes back up. Like her movies have come back up a lot in the sense of, oh, we didn't get what she was trying to do here. Or now we've met where she was at. I totally get that way. I'm so glad that this is actually where we're kind of really starting at and digging with this movie because on this rewatch, that's what really popped out for me too. This film commenting on tragedy and like the marketing of tragedy. Let's even play that benefit single scene. I finally have some good news to share with all of you. The members of the rock and roll group Low Shoulder have decided to extend a helping hand to our community. As you all know, their song, Through the Trees, has become our unofficial anthem of unity and healing. And they have decided to release it as a benefit single. 3% of the profits will go to local families who have been affected by loss. What about the other 97%? I mean, that's just crass, right? Crass. It means greedy, exploitative, scummy. Low shoulder are American heroes? No, they're not. I was there, Chastity. They didn't help anybody escape the fire. I don't even know how that rumor got started. Rumor? <laughs> rumor? It's true. It's on the Wikipedia. Because you're right, the whole backdrop of this entire movie is that this small town, you know, Devil's Kettle, is dealing with a gigantic tragedy is dealing with being in the spotlight of a, of a gigantic tragedy. Not very different than how Megan herself is kind of feeling at this moment where like the country is looking at them and kind of focusing on all on how not just uh, were they like beset by this fire, but now their kids are getting killed. And I almost wish this point was like hit even a little harder in the film. Like, I don't think we see like the idea of news cameras everywhere or them feeling like they're under, you know, media scrutiny, but it's like kind of referred to in the script that they're feeling so scrutinized and that like, this is how the band is now becoming famous with their like really lame, 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 lame tree song that they're doing about, about everything. And I think Diablo Cody like really sets it up for us in a way that I felt like she was kind of commenting on 9-11 right now yeah. in a way that I hadn't quite noticed at the time. I mean, and it's so obvious when you're looking at it, like she has you know, Jennifer, Megan Fox's character, buy these signature shots of 9-11 and like sell them and kind of complain that Tower 1 is like smaller than Tower 2. But the idea of a 9-11 shooter, I mean, here, let's let, even let's just have her describe it. Can I buy you a drink? Sure, what are we having? They have this really awesome 9-11 tribute shooter. It's red, white, and blue, but you have to drink it really fast or it turns brown. And... All right, well, we'll drink it fast. Okay. okay. That is so 
hilarious, ingenious, and dark, and almost too soon. It's like this movie comes out eight years after 9-11, but it is, I remember, I remember that feeling of everybody selling hats and everybody selling bands and everybody selling shirts and things being right on the cusp of like, not tasteful, you know, right on the cusp of like, this is way too much. And yet there's this defensiveness where it was hard to talk about. Like in that benefit single scene, you have that other, you know, student character who's like, how dare you insult this band? You can't say anything negative about like who we are saying the heroes are. And that is a feeling that I feel like we are so stuck in right now that it's hard to question anything about how the system works, how the people who are supposed to protect us are protecting us and not protecting us. You know, there's like kind of even oh, like Blue Lives Matter is like under the surface of that whole scene to me. You know, like that it's hard to talk about what's really going on when people are seizing upon like tragedies, disasters to market themselves, get more money, get more funding. You know, I was watching an episode of Shark Tank at one point, and I may be misremembering this or pushing it together with another, you know, business self-help show. But one of the things that you start to see also in these businesses is this idea of, well, what are you doing to give back? Because they know that that's a great selling point, right? It's like, yes, you have water bottles, but if you say, but, you know, every water bottle, we give one water bottle to, uh, you know, uh, an unhoused person, it makes the company appear like to be incredibly generous. Well, I'm going to buy their water bottles because they're giving back. And and there was a, a moment on Shark Tank where they did ask, like, well, how are you giving back? Like that is now part of like the sales pitch. You just can't be a company. You have to also give back because it's part of a larger narrative that I think is playing on your sympathy to get your money, right? It's like, well, you know, what, you know, what does that actually mean? Are they really taking, you know, uh, are they really getting involved or are they just aligning themselves to get involved uh, because it looks good for them? And I, and I, and I do, I feel like we're seeing that more and more. Everybody has to have, a social cause attached because that becomes how they identify. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm thinking that more in a company way or, or, um, you know, like this, like, Oh, the band becomes popular because all these people died. Right. And, and yes, they created this ritual, but I would also argue, I think the ritual went bad, right? The ritual didn't work. Or did it work? Well, she's not a virgin, right? Like she's not a virgin. And so they didn't kill her. And so the ritual in my mind went haywire. I think the fire and the band combined made them successful. But I think if they killed her, they would have become successful without that, if that makes sense. Because, yeah. Doesn't it feel like they knew the fire was going to happen, though? This is something I feel actually very unclear about. So I want to talk it out with you. It feels like they know the fire is going to happen, or at least they're not surprised but did they have that whole setup that there's going to be a fire or or was it just random? It's weird because their reaction to it is very unaffected. But it also seems, well, why do they need the fire? Did they set the fire to create the tragedy to then donate the song and then also kill this girl? And I think one of the things that's, again, so interesting about this movie is just from a, the point of view of what this movie is saying It's a horror movie where a woman is not being penalized 
for having sex, right? I think a lot of the times it's sort of like, oh, the final girl is the only girl who didn't have sex and she gets to live until the end. But, you know, Megan Fox is somebody who has sex. They misjudge her as someone who is uh, a brassy, tough-talking girl who is clearly covering up, I mean, there's so many levels here, covering up for, you know, not having sex by seeming very sexual, and they, they judge her wrong. And I do think that that, is like, I do think there's a part of that. I mean, obviously that's what gives her her powers, right? And that's why she becomes powerful. But maybe something is just askew. I don't know what's askew, but you're right. There's a couple questions in the beginning of this movie that are a little rocky that I'm willing to forgive. But I I am wondering, is it more that the tragedy happened that they became famous or is it, because they didn't, they didn't kill her. They didn't kill her. It worked like she was never killed or she was killed but she wasn't a virgin and so she just comes back as a as a succubus yeah well she, yeah cuz i think the idea is like as long as she's full on like the like on on like the blood of these men or or women i guess it doesn't you know it's not exclusively men but she can be unkillable so i guess they leave her for dead thinking it was Okay, because I don't think that they know that she's not dead. By the way, that sequence there where they do the flashback to her in the ritual, I mean, that is one of the most, I think, one of the most powerful scenes in the sense that it's like that moment where Adam Brody, I like Adam Brody a lot. uh, I think that he's made some really interesting choices along the way. But that moment where he starts singing like... um, the song, and they oh, start eight, laughing. Oh, eight six seven five three zero nine. Yeah. Then it'll change your number. The laughing, right? The laughing. Yeah. And because I've wrestled with that scene the first time I watched this movie, which actually was not even that long ago myself, the first first time. Um, Thinking like, oh, that's such a weird tonal clash. How do I feel about it? And then on the second watch, it kind of clicking for me like, oh, that's just so, so jarring how little they care about her last moments on life that they're going to make a joke about it, you know? And and, and I was thinking, I, I had this thought and then I read interviews where Karen just said it out loud. She was like, yeah, that scene to me was then like literalized. During the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, when she was hearing, you know, Christine Blasey Ford say, all I can remember is all of these guys yes. just laughing at me. Yeah. And like, I, I mean, that that moment is that moment. You know, it is the same moment of like feeling so disposable that you're just hilarious to these guys, you know, like, in your darkest pain. This moment where she is at her most vulnerable, like that is that sequence in the film is the only time that we see this character. And I don't want to say weak, because I think that that's the wrong term. But the most vulnerable, right? That she's the most, like she is, I guess, low status. I will say low status. I I don't want, weak is a tricky thing. Like she's tied up, she's begging for her life. And we see her in this moment where she looks the most unkillable, I guess, you know, like, well, you have to think there. And that's when they, and that's when they plunge in. That's when they literally, you know, do this violent killing of her. 
and they're they're enjoying that that pain they're enjoying that pain and i think that the pleasure of pain is something really interesting we talked about this with hellraiser like pleasure and pain and this movie is very much about this because what gets all these guys in trouble is they are thinking with their dick right like every time that she is feeding on somebody she is luring them into this idea of pleasure i'm going to give you my body i'm giving you my body and they they let all their guard down and in that moment that's when they are uh completely destroyed right and it's like this idea of every rational thought goes out the window i mean i'm screaming at uh at needy's boyfriend when he like let's Jennifer kiss him like no what are you doing what are you doing you idiot like but it's like everyone can fall victim to this idea of of maybe there is you know this titillation of of this like you know this woman who I think is representing sex it's like in in many ways I can't think of a better actress to play it at this point in this moment like it's like 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 every guy just becomes jello around her and I think that that idea of giving up everything for this moment is such a great thing because it like she uses that against them she uses the one thing that she knows that they want her body to be the ultimate weapon you know to to enact revenge and what i think is funny about it is like how little effort she even puts into winning them over that she really has to do like if you're listening to her you can tell she doesn't care about these guys you can no. tell she's sort of like you can tell she's being fake and i think she's being so funny in these scenes where she's playing jennifer as like callous and manipulative and also blasé about the whole thing like, oh, I know I can get this. I don't even have to try that hard to manipulate this guy. I don't even have to lean in that much to try to convince him of anything. And I can still be myself and be like ignorant and flagrant, flagrantly ignorant and not even care about it. And like all of those dimensions in, in Jennifer, I think are so funny. Like, I love this clip. I just want to play this one. I forgot to read Hamlet. Is he going to fuck his mom? Well, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Um... I actually wanted to uh, to ask you something. You want to know if I'll go out with you? <laughs> yeah. What? I. I don't. How did you? How did you just you know? go ahead with the pitch? Okay. Um. Well, we've been having a lot of fun in class, you and I, and I thought that maybe you'd like to go see a movie or something. There's a uh, midnight showing of Rocky Horror at the Bijou next weekend. I don't like boxing movies. Like her performance in this is just amazing. I really amazing. will stand up so hard for Megan Fox's performance in this movie. I know I talked about Christian Bale playing like three different versions of Bruce Wayne in The Dark Knight. And I feel like she's doing a similar thing here. Like there are so many little differences in her performance that are so wonderful together. But I do think what they're playing on in in a grander scheme of things is this idea that, you know, so much of lusting especially on the internet, right? Like you're, you're looking at these people, you're not thinking about these people. And, and that idea, this idea of like 
and forgive me if I'm saying anything that is, if you're listening to this and you're feeling like, oh, you're, you're, you're being misogynistic here. But I, I think it's like, it's like a pinup girl has come to life, walking towards you and giving herself to you. You know nothing about her and you expect it like, oh, well, yeah, this is possible. Like, and this is kind of like, this is the weird world that we put ourselves into. Like, no one is connecting with her on any level. No one is like, oh my gosh, I like you or this, or they have any, they're not clicking on anything. It's purely just like, I'm the hottest person in this town and I want to fuck you. And everyone's like, I buy that. I don't question it. And I expect it. And there is the only person who does is needy when she moves on needy for that kiss. Again, a kiss that is, you know, heard around the world. Like, oh my gosh, she's, you know, lesbian kiss in this movie. Um, And it's like, but that's the only person that's like, oh, wait, wait, what the fuck is going on? What are we doing here? And while that is actually probably one of the most sincerest or most like connective, like uh, sexual scenes in the film, I do find it interesting that she's able to pull away and be like, oh, no, 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 wait, wait, this doesn't make sense right now. And I think that speaks a lot about the differences between men and women. Uh, but, you know, it's it's amazing how little she has to do because everyone just expects it's like, Oh, I'm just getting this body. No one cares about anything else, but her body. And I'll probably say, I'll probably say body about nine more times uh, in the next five minutes. <laughs> totally. And what I find so fascinating and like the interviews that Megan Fox has given sense about this movie is how, like how much, even at the time she registered that in a way, this was like her talking about her own experience, like the sacrificing, you know, where we do see her vulnerable. That's such a different side of this character than we've seen this whole time. And like Megan has talked about that as a moment that really was like true to her, true to her own life. I realized that in filming that scene where they sacrifice me, um, that for me, that was really reflective of, I felt like my relationship with the movie studios at that point. Um, because I felt like that's what they were willing to do to literally bleed me dry. They didn't care about my health, my well-being, mentally, emotionally, physically at all. And they were willing to sacrifice me physically as long as they got what they wanted out of it. And it didn't matter how many times I spoke up and said, I'm hurting. This isn't right. I need someone to protect me. This is going on. Someone needs to listen. It didn't matter at all. I mean, wasn't her audition for Transformers like Michael Bay saying, wash my car? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's yeah. a real thing. Like, that's in the movie, too. But that was her audition. Wash my car. You know, and I mean, obviously, it's not like he's hiring her. But he, but you can't you can't speak of objectification more than that idea of, like, that's what you are. Like, that's what I'm I'm buying you for this body doing this thing. Yeah. Or like how she... I think it was this year that she went on Jimmy Kimmel and she talked about how uh, when she was in her first Michael Bay movie, she was only 15 and she was put in these like six inch heels and like a stars and stripes bikini. And um, they took her to a set where there was like a bar. And one of the people told Michael Bay, like, we can't have her sit at the bar. She's too young. She's only 15. And he was like, great, throw her under this waterfall. So she's like dancing like wet and naked in a waterfall under in a bikini when she says she's like in 10th grade. And that is like her introduction to how the men of the industry are going to see her, you know, as get wet, little girl, like you're 15. It's great. We're all we're all having fun here. And it is hard to imagine at all what it is like to be in that position, to be in Megan Fox's position. I feel like it's a really rare position for any actress to be in to that extent. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. 
it's very rare that I think the culture singles out one actress with such laser focus and says, you're the hottest woman we've seen on screen in a long time. How can we use this? In a way, it kind of reminds me of the way we treat of, of Marilyn Monroe, you know? Yeah. Like a person who she actually has tattooed on her arm, you know, where it's like, you're so beautiful. We don't need you to talk. I want to talk. No, 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 no. We don't need you to talk, but I want to act. No, no, no. We don't need you to do any of that. And like, it's just a repetition, I feel like, of so much of the same cycle, except I think Megan Fox maybe had it even worse because of the dovetailing of like the internet. Nobody, like people are at least protecting Marilyn. Well, no, Marilyn had her nude photos leaked too. Like you can't, you can't win. So did Madonna. I mean, Madonna yeah. is interesting too, because Madonna, I think, add a little bit more power over her image, right? She, I think could, that- she tried to control it almost in the same way that I feel like Jennifer does. Like, fine, I like sex. I have sex. I'll do sex. You know, so it's like, you, you can't sexualize me if I'm doing it to myself. But I think that is one of the traps that like women in this position fall into is you're like, I'm being sexualized. Okay, I'll control my sexuality. And then every, and I'll talk about my sexuality. And everybody's like, all you talk about is sex, you crazy sex, sex, right. sex, sex person. Like, and then, and then like, as what, what happened to Megan is she was like, then I feel like the women really turned on me. And they were right. like, yeah, well, we don't care about you at all. You're just playing up for the boys. And she was like, actually realized now I was just playing it all up for the boys, but I had no idea what to do. And where am I supposed to go at all? Like, there's no corner for her. Like Megan has talked about how when she was a kid in high school, she was made fun of constantly by the other girls because they thought she was too hot in high school. And so they would like throw ketchup packets at her at lunch and she would have to eat in the bathroom. And that one year for Halloween, there was a girl at her school who was like the daughter of the preacher. And she dressed like Megan for Halloween, like in a cat suit, just to make fun of her. And so, yeah, it's weird. Like you hear Megan Fox talk about it today. Like she's like, I want to stick up and talk about feminism and me too, but I feel like there's no place for me in there because I feel like people think I deserve it because I talk so much about sex. Well, it's interesting because I don't even get that she talks about sex as much as she is sexy, right? Like, or or viewed as sexy. I, I just typed in Megan Fox into Google right now. It's, you know, it's October 2022. And this is what comes up. The first ones that come up, Megan Fox in a slick corset. Megan Fox went <laughs> slutty but studious. Uh, Megan Fox showing off her curvaceous figure. Uh, Megan Fox uh, high slit dress is slutty. Uh, Megan Fox looks smoking hot. Like these are the article, and these are all from literally one day ago, two days ago, three days ago, one day ago. Right? This is <laughs> now. Like so, she can't I mean, get well, away. From, I mean, yeah. You are, you know, the the bespoke Italian restaurant of S&M, but yes. I'm just imagining putting your name in all of these. Uh, Paul Shear is sexy, but studious. But Paul Shear in a slit corset. I mean, I would love it. Uh, <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Uh, but the but the idea that I think this movie really puts forward on some level is no one knows Jennifer. And I think what we're saying here is no one knows Megan Fox. And the 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 centerpiece of this film is this relationship between Needy and uh, Jennifer. And the idea of these two characters, what I think is so fascinating about them, is Needy is connected to Jennifer. Like, she's got this connection. Before anything supernatural happens, she knows when she's at her house, right? She has this, like, connection to her on a plane. And I think that that is a connection that you have with somebody that you love, right? And, it, the, you know, one of the first lines in the movie, you know, as Needy is like watching Megan at her 
cheerleading practice, you know, uh, Chastity says like, oh, you're so lesbo gay for her, a lesbi gay for her. And I do think that there is a real love between these characters, like whether or not, you know, look, and I think this movie has been called like, you know, an LGBTQ plus movie. I think this movie is called a sapphic film. Uh, you could go either way, but I think what I would say about it is Needy knows Jennifer, knows Jennifer, doesn't know Jennifer's body, right? And and while their relationship is problematic, while, you know, Jennifer is like bossing her around, like we've seen a lot of this kind of stuff. And, and, and part of this movie is about Needy coming into her own and, and, and literally defeating Jennifer. But I would argue that of everyone that we meet in the entire film, she's the only one that actually cares what's happening to her, how she's feeling, and what she's really going through. That moment when they throw her into the van, when she's slightly drugged and they're looking at her. Uh, by the way, I forgot about the 9-11 shooters that they do at the bar too. There's a comment. <laughs> that, um, but like when they throw her into the van, they're, the the way that Needy looks at her as she goes away, like and knowing like, I, should I be doing something to help? I don't know. And it's like that weird relationship where it's like, she wants this, but I know it's not right because, you know, Jennifer is going there to hook up with the lead singer of, of Low Shoulder, but it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, yes. You hear that fear in her voice. I watched her get into that van and I knew something awful was going to happen. He was skinny and twisted and evil like this petrified tree I saw when I was a kid. Yeah. And like, yeah, I, that feeling of like, my friend wants this thing. I don't know if they should have it. They're being mean to me to get it. And, you know, she's like, go home. I don't care about you. And yet, like, she cares about her safety on a deep way. And I'll admit, like, I kind of struggle with this film as like a know they're secretly in love with each other film because I would want to believe that like the needy character at some level knows that she's not that nice to her, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that Jennifer is a good friend at all, like even before she's turned into like a succubus. Right. But um, but I do understand that like that dynamic and that fascination. Like I buy this film as an infatuation film, but not as like a true love film. I can right. believe I that Needy is infatuated with her friend as like just a woman with so much power and beauty who has singled her out um, and makes her in a way feel special, even as she's always making her feel unspecial. Like we get that, you know, monologue in her head right away where it's like she understands Jennifer so much that she understands what she means when Jennifer says, wear something cute and all of the layers of that. Yes. Wear something cute meant something very specific in Jennifer speak. It meant I couldn't look like a total zero but I couldn't upstage her either. I could expose my stomach, but never my cleavage. Tits were her trademark. And I think that that speaks to a larger dynamic in female friendship too, especially like they call it like a sandbox relationship, right? This is a friendship that's been going on for a long time. And I think, you know, if we're talking about power dynamics too, if Jennifer, you know, is powerful in a, in a way, right? Like she, and whether or not it's an act, she can carry herself in a way where the guy flirts at her at the bar, she shuts him down. She can kind of shut down Chris Pratt a little bit as well. Like she's got some control again over men. And I think that, uh, she's kind of also using that power and control. It's like, it's almost like she's been taught the wrong things. It's because, you know, everything you just said about Megan Fox, I think rings true for this character of Jennifer. So I'm going to kind of mix them together because I think it, it, there's probably some, you know, I think that there are drawing from each other's lives there. And I think for the better mint of the picture, but I think if you are treated that way, 
the only way that she knows how to keep people close or have control is by that power. And I think that like, you know, Needy is there. She wants to be her friend. I think that she's wants to be like her, but I also do, I do think it's a real relationship, but I agree with you. I don't know if it's a fully, I think it's like way the way that you love a friend. I don't know. I mean, I think that like you can love a friend in a very deep way without it being yeah. like, you know, I am gay or I am this. I mean, and maybe she is, but I think the movie, you know, I think the movie can say like, I am in love with my friend. I am going to maybe try this thing, but it's not like outwardly. I don't get that. Like, she's just hanging with her because she wants to fuck her. Like, I don't oh, no. get that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I very much get this female friendship so much. Like, I feel like I had my Jennifer best friend when I was in high school, Mm -hmm. you know, like, because I went from a public school to a private school. And so I didn't know anybody when I showed up. And then like this girl who became my best friend, like invited me to her birthday party the first couple of months of school and like really kind of welcomed me in, in a way that was so important to me. She was like my, uh, she ushered me in. And I thought she was like the coolest and most prettiest person on the planet. She looked like a Disney princess, like hands down, like giant eyes, perfect nose, long, 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 long hair. And I was just so entranced with this idea that this girl wanted to be my friend. And she was like my best friend all through high school. Like, and we had kind of this like psychic link and like we had our whole invented language and she was, you know, probably the most important person to me. And I remember I have this weird memory of like one of the first nights we had a slumber party, like the whole school did in the gym, Um, like falling asleep in our sleeping bags were right next to each other. And it was like right when we were first becoming friends. And I was like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. I have a friend. Oh, my God. And I remember falling asleep in her hair was like kind of had fallen onto my sleeping bag. And I felt so close to her at that moment. I was like, oh, that's so sweet. And I feel like I get that of like. I remember it even crossed my mind, like, am I in love with this person? I was like, yes, but not in that way. You're not in this way. I'm just like so in love and grateful that this person is my friend. Right. And and, and it is like a whole muddle when you're like in high school, because like everything is so big and so passionate. Well, I think it's also like the time that you're exploring what love is, right? Like you can have infatuation, like, oh, I like this person, but you also are leaving the love of your family you know, who kind of loves you unconditionally, hopefully, or, you know, most people or whatever, but there's, there's some sort of unconditional family love. And then you are allowing yourself to be open to someone who's not in your family to give you that. Um, Yeah. And those relationships have so much of the same kind of dark subtext that I think is like happening in this movie too, where you get the sense that like, Jennifer is also competitive with needy, you know, mm-hmm. like that Jennifer even needs something from needy too, is like kind of threatened by her in some way. You know, she tells Chip, like, say I'm better than needy. Or when yeah. needy thinks a boy is interesting or cool, Jennifer targets him. She's like, oh, needy likes that person. I will take that person down specifically. You know, like what she does with um, the kind of with a uh, Colin, the sort of like a uh, emo guy. And that that dark competitiveness in these very close female friendships is so, 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 so true and fascinating to talk about. And I feel like if there is, if there is an issue that I do have with this film, it's like, yes, there's meat on this bone, you know, but I don't feel like the meat is ever that much that chewed or digested. It's just sort of witnessed. 
Like you witness the competitiveness between them, but the movie I wouldn't say isn't, a, it's not about the competitiveness. You right, witness I the think... infatuation, but it's not about the infatuation. It's like all of these things are in the movie that are fascinating, but it doesn't really make it about any of them. It's They're just there. Yeah, and I think it's also true to high school, right? Like there is something that is just, that's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. I think men have similar relationships on some level too. It may be a lot more uh, based in physical things, you know, like, oh, I'm going to, and by the way, this sounds stupid as I'm even about to say it, but it's like, oh, you can bench press this. I'll do this. I'm going to one-up you. Um, I'm going to, you know, there's a competition, right? And I think that, you know, there's a little bit more, as always with women, I think a little bit more mind games going on, a little bit more, you know, it's a lot lot smarter, you know, than I think, than some of the rivalry that you might see between two guys. Um, But, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about this movie and I'm thinking about this idea of, you know, how we meet Needy. And Needy is a character that is underestimated as well, multiple times. Um, obviously, she kills the succubus, right? You know, she literally kills another person for the good of the school, the community. And, you know, uh, she does something that I feel like you don't often see heroes do like the succubus is bad, but she's very conflicted about this. This is also her friend and, and, and the plunging of the knife into her the same way that, you know, the band did it to her. It, you know, it's coming, it's sweeter, you know, it, it, it is more kind and caring, uh, but it is for the reason to protect everybody else. I mean, she knows she's got to protect, you know, she's in a way it's like, I'm killing her for the benefit of her because this can't continue to go on. She's hurting too many people. And then, you know, she goes off to avenge her death at the end. So it's not like she feels like she, you know, she was forced into this unholy alliance to become this demon. Anyway, all I'm saying is like when we meet her in the, in this, in this mental institution, you know, everyone underestimates her and she is just, you know, she's so kind of tough. She's got this power now and the power I think you know, while the movie is saying it's because she was bit, which is the literal reason, but it's also showing this growth of this character. Now she finally has this power to stand up for herself, to say what she wants, to do what she wants. And in a way, she had to kill that relationship to to be born. Like she had, and, yeah. and she's, I, I think she's actually a more full person than Jennifer ever was. Because in a weird way, people don't fall at her knees. So she has a harder time to be heard and yet she is stronger because you know when you see her at the end she's not like that beautiful version of jennifer that we see or that idealized pinup version of jennifer she's still like this other like unkempt you you would think less of her so she's got to work harder to be as forceful as she is but also taking advantage of people underestimating that does that make yeah. sense? I mean, I'm kind of, I know I'm like hitting some things, but. No, it does. And I mean, there's some kind of things in like the construction of her character that I think are a little klutzy. Mm-hmm. Like 
the one that I the one that always pops out to me costuming wise is like when when Needy goes to prom and they put her in this 80s prom dress, like the kind of nerdy, puffy sleeve, yes, yeah. blue eyeshadow prom dress. And I'm like, that girl doesn't wear that dress. Like Needy is not Jennifer, but Needy knows that that's not a cool dress. Needy would probably wear like the most current dress she could afford because she's like trying to be hip. Needy knows that that prom dress is not hip. So I do not buy the like underscoring of her as a nerd by putting her in an outfit that I do not believe she'd wear in the slightest. That yeah. is an odd that you're, you're right. There are like some things that make her almost like teen film nerdy. Like she's out of control. Like the Tony Danza movie where like the girl takes down <laughs> her hair and like, Oh my God. But it, like, it's like, it's kind of like, I wonder if that's also kind of a choice, right? Like that she's almost playing the, like as they're both playing archetypes, like one is playing the hot girl archetype and one is playing the, uh, the, you know, the nerd girl archetype to a degree where everybody else around them is kind of much more grounded in the way that they look and are. But those two are heightened versions of these two archetypes. Yeah. Although Needy does wear like the cool stuff when she needs. I mean, the when, when they go to the club and Needy's wearing like the low, low, low jeans, which by the way, it just like terrified me because I am still so worried that Gen Z is going to bring those jeans back. Like, low to the belly button and you know like as he says like you can see like your front butt and you know uh, pockets on the ass I really don't want those jeans to come back in fashion Uh. so just watching her put them on was terrifying but you know I think that Needy wants to get in wants to fit in and be cool and one of the things I think is like not quite in the film and I wish it was in the film a little bit more is that it seems to me that probably the people in this town like Needy more than they like Jennifer like Needy actually has a boyfriend who cares about her, you know, who's who's nice. He's doofusy, sure. Johnny Simmons is chip, but like he, she is actually cared about in a way that I think does make Jennifer jealous. Because one of the questions I had when I finished watching this movie this last time is like, how does the rest of the school even feel about Jennifer? Because there is something about her that seems so lonely throughout the movie. And I realized one thing we never really get a viewpoint on is like how the other girls in town feel about Jennifer. And I found a deleted scene that actually is more clear about it, like how the other girls in town feel about Jennifer. This scene that takes place at um, at the funeral of Colin, you know, the kind of the like emo guy. Oh yeah. Is it true that Colin had a date with Jennifer Check on the night he was killed? Because Jennifer Check is gross. She thinks she's so special just because she's popular and is what society considers attractive. But she's really just a generic giga bitch who listens to Fergie and shops at Hollister. And also she has mouth herpes and the other kind. So I just want to confirm, Colin didn't have a date with her. Right. Oh man, you know it's so interesting because that's the same girl who talks about the deceased boy. He's like, oh, you know, he's in a in a better place, and you know, and the mom's like, shut the fuck up. My son did not want to die, like you know. Yeah. Like, but th- there is something about these like creations. We create what we want these people to be to fulfill something, but we don't know anything about them. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like the film is trying to build up this comparison of like a, like somebody who's being treated with like genuine love and somebody who's not, you know, like there's that, there's that kind of back and forth sequence where like needy is having sex with chip 
while Jennifer is seducing Colin in like the house of horrors. And it cuts back and forth. I feel like it almost, it cuts back and forth between the two of them for so long. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I can't handle this anymore. But like you just see Needy feeling kind of like loved and having sweet jokes made and feeling so bonded with like her partner and like the kind of just boy fantasy, like porno talk that Jennifer is like kind of putting herself into like a, the artificiality of how she's acting. That one yeah. scene is all about what sincerity is like when you have a connecting a connection with somebody and the other scene is all about like the idea of what the idea of what sex looks like, but it's not actually the truth of it. Right. Yeah, I totally get that. And there's something interesting this movie is saying, dude, because that sex is so kind of vanilla, but it's also very kind. And it's being juxtaposed with a scene that's like a lot more, you know, quote unquote, like sexy or dangerous or whatever it is. And I can't quite make heads or tails of it, right? Because in the middle of that, you know, she's seeing this image of somebody having this other, you know, this other... It's almost like the Julia and Hellraiser all again. Like she's having sex, yeah. she gets these horrific images and the guy is like, oh, she's really into this. This is passionate. Yeah, and uh, and I think that it's tricky because I don't know what the movie's saying. I don't know what the movie's saying in this moment because I think they, they want to have their cake and eat it too. I think they're saying like she's not really happy with it, but it's also like this is a nicer way to be-ish. But there's like, maybe it's this idea of this is what we're supposed to be doing. And while this is nice, I'm not going to rebel against it, but it's not necessarily what I want. And it's hard when something is nice, but you don't want it because it's like, well, what's wrong with it? Well, it's, I'm not feeling it. Right. Like, it's like, it's, you know, I don't know. It's like, it, I, I'm trying to like break those. Wait, that so yeah. Do you buy the theory on the internet? That she doesn't actually like Chip because she's so in love with just something else that's not him. Because I feel like she genuinely loves Chip. But I, there's you know, a whole I felt like that, too. that feels like Chip is just there to be like an obvious loser that she doesn't love. Well, you see, I felt that, too. I felt like she loved Chip. And then I read all this stuff on the internet. I'm like, did I miss all of that? And I think that that actually lends itself to the idea that like, oh, she's really just in love with Jennifer. And she's biding her time with this nerdy guy. And that's all. But... Like, he cares for her. He takes care of her. He's looking out for her. But then immediately when the, you know, when Jennifer, you know, after like a moment of feeling a little bit disrespected, Jennifer comes after him, he folds just like every other guy. I think it's a lot more interesting to have a great, solid relationship where he's like, don't go out to that bar. Be careful. I'm nervous. How are you? I'm using condoms. Let's take our time. Let's do this. Let's make it comfortable. He's sweet. He's nerdy. He's kind. And then... The minute he gets presented with an opportunity to like cheat on her, he's like, yep, I'm in. And that to <laughs> me is such a more interesting a juxtaposition of men and 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 how it's like, oh, wait, this guy that I think is so connected in, in this, he's just out the door a, a second later, giving all that up to say that she never really liked him is buying her time. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I think you can make a case for it. It's just a matter of how much you want to believe that she's just doing that to play the part of needy because the real needy would be with Jennifer. I just don't think that the real needy would be with Jennifer wholesale either. I don't know. I don't think she would either. 
But it is interesting. Like there's this really great long extended interview online that's Megan Fox interviewing Diablo Cody, like 10 years after Jennifer's body came out in talking about this whole experience. That's where like the marketing clip I pulled from is from. And also this Megan talking about the sacrifice. But there's a minute in that that really popped out where Diablo Cody was talking about how she saw herself as needy. Really basing it on was myself because I was going mm. through this transition in my own life where what I, I really am in real life, if we're going to use Jennifer's body characters as a metaphor, I'm a needy. Okay. Like I'm a, I am a bookish, insecure, cowardly person. Mm-hmm. And I had created, and my real name is Brooke. And I had created this Diablo Cody persona to sur- to survive and to, to get attention, which is something that I desperately needed at that time in my life because mm-hmm. nobody ever listened to me. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly when I changed my name and started doing uncharacteristic things, suddenly for the very first time in my life, people were interested. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fascinating because like what Diablo sort of saying in there is that she was almost at her own kind of targeted point in her career of all eyes around Diablo Cody. Like, who is this woman who just came out of nowhere? She was a stripper. She did Juno. Like, her name is Diablo. Do you remember, like, that just fascination? Like, that kind of laser craziness that was on her? Like, she talks in that interview, too, about, like, searching her name on Twitter. Greatest mistake of all time. Like, you're not, like, a social media person. But kind of vaguely, maybe. People are very careful with their tweets these days, but back then it was a new, Twitter was a new social media platform and Mm -hmm. people were like reckless. So I would like search my name, which is idiotic. I don't do that. that? I do not do that stuff anymore. And I would see like actual peers of mine, like other writers and other directors making fun of me and making fun of the movie, I guess, assuming I wouldn't see the tweet. But it was like, oh my God, like I'm being attacked from the inside. Like I'm, you know, and critics were awful. But yeah, like, so it's almost like these two kind of women, like Megan and Diablo come together in this moment where everybody's like, we kind of want to see these people fail, which right. I feel like happens. Like, well, they're, you- they're, they're, they're women that are held up for their name is interesting. She used to be a stripper. They like, it's like they are the embodiment of like, half-assed culture it's not like oh my gosh we love her it's like we love her story we well, we're interested in this like there's a it's a it's that thing that the internet can kind of do which is like paint you with one brush and that's why i think people get so upset when they have these parasocial relationships and they see somebody acting in a way that's different than their internet conception of them it's like whoa, 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 whoa wait that's not who i know it's like no 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 you don't know them you bought yeah. into this one brush stroke version of them and and to me they are and were that. And that the difference being that I think on some level, Diablo Cody had a lot more like um like accolades thrown at her work. I think that she was perceived as being more of a serious artist than Megan Fox was, but at the same time, I do feel I find it to be like because she was a stripper. Right? Yeah. Like almost you know, like it's like cause that's yeah. why she's interesting. Not because she's mean, a good writer. It's like cause she's all cause she did this other thing. Like, you know, two thousand nine was still like the era where you couldn't run an interview with a woman in a glossy magazine without her being in her bra in the photos. You know, so do you crazy. remember that? Like you could not interview an actress without like whatever magazine it was, her having to be in her bra or panties in at least one of the photos. It was such a crazy time where like women didn't get to keep their clothes on. I remember like Sarah Michelle Gellar saying that she came to set in tears because like her Rolling Stone cover was basically her from Buffy was basically like her in like a red S&M kind of suit or just a red leather suit. And it was very sexual, you know, um, 
And that was the image that they ran with. And it was this idea that you're right. It's like Maxim magazine, right? That idea of like, you know, the casting people in Hollywood would open up a Maxim magazine and be like, oh, well, she's number 45. All right, we'll cast her, you know, over number 62. Like they were literally using Maxim as like, how do we cast women? And and these women were being forced into these photo shoots of eating whipped cream and all this sort of stuff. It's like you were forced to become a pinup model at a time when even if you didn't want to do it, it was just what was done. It was, it was just what was done. Yeah, yeah, it was like, you can't succeed here unless you do it. And if you look back on some of those pictures, there is an uncomfortability in some of them. It's like, oh, I don't know if they wanted to be doing that. You know, there's a difference if you want to. And a lot of the times, and I've, I mean, look, I've been on a lot of photo shoots, um, and obviously no one's asking me to, you know, get down to my skivvies. Um, Would you? Would you get down to your skivvies? Would you uh, no, one want, no, one, no one wants to see that. <laughs> no one wants to see that. But I will say that, you know, what I get, what gets thrown at me a lot is, oh, make this one funny. Make this one funny. And I hate that because it's like, oh, I'm a comedian. I do this. I, you know, I'm in funny things. Like, so now I have to be like, blah, like, you know, it's like as if like, that's what I, you know, it's, it's such a weird thing. And you hate the picture when you see it. Cause it's like, blah, blah, you know, it's like, and, um, and I feel like I was joking around with a friend of mine about this idea. Like if you ever see like someone with glasses, like you'll see that they're always like touching their glass, a lot of glasses touching. Like, it's like, there's just certain things that they just go, we're going to do this. And look, I get it. You're a photographer. You're taking a million pictures a day, but it's like, and people are like, yeah, 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 that's so good. That funny face is so funny. And you're like, I think this is going to be good because I want to please the person taking the picture. But you have to learn at a certain point, like, fuck the person taking the picture because I have to also live with it. They're going to go on and do five more shoots and they're going to keep on going. But like, and it's so hard because like you are being told like, no, that's so good. But you have to put your foot down and say, I don't want to be seen like this. And that's a very hard thing to do. And by the way, if I had to take a photo shoot tomorrow, I'll be doing a fucking funny picture. I want to not do a funny picture, but I got like, you know, you get in this moment where like, I don't want to let anybody down. I want to be a team player. I want to be, you know, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a, you know, but it, and it, and then the minute you say you don't want to take a picture and I think it, it goes 10 times more for women. Oh, she's a bitch. <laughs> you know, like, and it's like, you know, um, and, and that's, and that's, that sucks too. It does. And I think it's, I mean, it's fascinating to hear like that from your point of view too, how, how that is just like kind of a widespread imagey thing. And, you know, one of the cultural phenomenons that I find most fascinating from a distance is if you think about it, the culture always has one woman at any given time that we have decided it's okay to be mean to. Like mm -hmm. always, there's always one and they sort of kind of, they rotate in and out of like trendiness. I'm noticing a lot now because this year I've re reviewed two Lena Dunham films. And every time I review a Lena Dunham film and it's like tweeted by the New York Times, uh, my mentions are all full of people saying how much they hate Lena Dunham. And it's just a fascinating reaction that it doesn't happen to really anybody else whose films I'm reviewing right now. But it's like Lena Dunham is on the list of the person that we make fun of. And I remember when before Lena Dunham, it was Amy Schumer. And then before Amy Schumer, it was actually Lena Dunham back then too. But then like before that, I feel like it was Diablo Cody. And like, there's always one. And I feel like one of the kind of commonalities of it is there's usually like a female writer who talks pretty openly about a lot of the crazy 
bullshit that happens to women about like, you know, worrying about your looks, about people like ranking you over other women, about like how unfair it is to be treated in this way or like what it really feels like to, you know, wear the skin that I am wearing in. You know, Amy Schumer tries to talk a lot about like body image issues. Lena Dunham tries to talk a lot about body image issues. And and Diablo Cody is talking about them in here. And people tend to like have five minutes of being like, thank you for saying it. And then later, like, I'm embarrassed that you said that out loud. It's embarrassing to me that like our, our secrets are out there. There seems to be some sort of punishingly strange cycle about it, you know, where it's like women writers who kind of say the ugliest parts of the truth about being a woman uh, are the ones who get demonized. And the ones who are more like, it's badass to be a strong, powerful woman. I love it. All sizes are beautiful. And they say all of the right things, what you're supposed to say. They describe the world that we're supposed to be living in, where yes, all sizes are beautiful. And we want that to be the truth. And it is often still not the truth. And I feel like it's kind of maddening that nobody can say that out loud. Do you know that there's the right thing to say? And then there's the truth. But it's also like this idea that the people who make the wrong step, there's something in the movie that they talk about very briefly, it's, I think it's a line, and you may remember it better than I do, where uh, Amanda Siegfried says, uh, and I mispronounced her name a couple times now, uh, says, you're waning in popularity. It's it's kind of towards the end of the movie. Like, you were so yeah. popular. You you kind of peaked a year ago, right? Like, And I, I just think, I think that's interesting, too. It's like this idea that, uh, the, the idea that, like, sometimes we, we lift people up very quickly and then we wait for one misstep. And I'm not saying anything out of, you know, that no one has already pointed out. But with women, it can be a lot sharper. And look, there are some things that are with anybody, any celebrity, some things that are self-inflicted that you could be like, oh, that's weird. I don't like that. And I, I there, for example, I could talk about it like this. Draymond Green punched Jordan Poole in the face. And we saw the video of that. And you're like, holy shit, that's a sucker punch. Like, and and there's like, a, and that will make me feel like, oh, Fuck Draymond, you know, uh, in a way, right? Like, like, and so you see something and you you start to associate stuff. But women, it seems like a lot of times they make that misstep and it's so hard for them to come back. And then in that misstep, they make another misstep or perceived misstep. And then it gets harder and harder and harder. And it becomes this thing where it's hard to even judge like what's the misogyny versus what's the real thing. Like the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard thing. I think it's a very complicated yeah. thing. It's like, well, what's what's playing the part that we don't like her versus what's playing the part of what we're actually hearing? And what? how is that affecting news articles? There's so or many Olivia things Olivia Wilde and Don't Worry Darling. Yes. You know, 100%. the people are very excited to see her fall. Yes. Like they're excited in a way that it feels kind of bizarrely disproportionate. There could be a lot like, and there's jealousy or there's unfairness or there's other issues at play, you know, when people can turn on people in a very harsh, harsh way. And and, and we start to, it's like if someone has an opinion about Hellraiser not being their favorite <laughs> movie, uh, all of a sudden you're a moron and uh, you don't have good sex. And no, I, but you know, it's like, but there is this idea that you can, I think we're so let down by people um, because we expect everyone to be the model of perfection or the model of perfection that we want them to be. Right. And, and you that could go with Will Smith, like, you know, like, Oh, is it shocking that Will Smith did that thing at the Oscars? Like, absolutely. Is it 10 times more shocking because he's Will Smith? Yeah. Like that's a story because it's Will Smith. It's a story no matter what, but the interesting thing about it is America's sweetheart does this thing 
that is violent and crazy, you know, and then like in a, a crazed moment. And it becomes a lot more of a, you know, it becomes much more of a talking point, you know, like we got to look at it, got to analyze it, got to see, you know, uh, all this kind of shit. I don't know. It's, it, it's a very thorny subject that I think this movie is on some level addressing. It's, it's me too. Who do you believe? It's who takes uh, pride in things that they have nothing in stake of. Like that girl at the funeral, she's like, I I believe that he's in a better place. Like, fuck you. Or the band going like, I'm giving money back. Well, fuck you. It's like, you know, no one is, everyone's out for themselves by taking down somebody else. And maybe that's what we're getting to on some level. It's like, you're elevating yourself by pushing someone else down. And in a weird way, you know, the most altruistic thing done in this film is needy killing Jennifer because she's helping the whole town and she's the one that's penalized the most for it. I mean, she did murder somebody, but, but you know, does that make any sense? No, that does. That actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, that is one of those things like that. I think that is why I feel some mild frustration with this film is I feel like we can lean in and pull that reading out of it. And I don't always feel like the movie delves into the reading, but I think it's there. Do you know and I would, yeah. I, I'm fascinated by that. I think there's also this thing in here of like the fact that this atrocity happens to Jennifer, you know, the kind of mean girl that people don't really like very much, a girl who is having a ton of sex with like Chris Pratt, you know, that this horrible thing happening to a girl that a lot of people don't like in this town, it seems to be, um, that she's a victim too, you know, that like it's, you don't have to be saintly to not deserve bad things to happen to you. Right. You know, and that's what I feel like is in that Jennifer character, too. A horrible thing happens to her and she doesn't deserve it. And she doesn't deserve it because she's a virgin. She doesn't deserve it because she just doesn't deserve it. That doesn't nobody deserves to be stabbed. So some lame man can be famous. And like the idea of like defending. Wait, wait, but like, do they have a catchy hook? Okay, wait, I want to ask you this. In 2009, is emo music the coolest music or is this movie making fun of emo music having been cool? I didn't, I don't know this about emo music. I'm not a music critic. Well, I look, like, I mean, this movie makes a pointed joke about Adam, well, Maroon 5, which I thought yeah. was actually, again, still topical, but like, they're like, oh man, Maroon 5 is the shit. You know, it's like, there is something about it. Like, I think that emo music, I think in this time, and look, there'll be somebody out there to correct me, but this is before the Taylor Swift's of it all. This is like, this is still in that time where we're we're getting Maroon 5-ish kind of bands, like, you know, like the the sensitive man singing, you know, but it's, you know, yeah, I, 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 I believe that's the time. Okay, because I couldn't tell if this, move, if this movie is also maybe low-key making fun of it in the way that like Saturday Night Fever it was intended to sort of be low key making fun of disco. Like when Saturday Night Fever comes out, disco is waning. Disco's not cool. Yeah. But then that movie makes disco cool again. So the subtext of like, you know, John Travolta being into a style that's like fading actually gets totally lost. Like like they, that mockery of that moment does not translate into screen, which by the way, we do need to do that movie sometime. It's so great. And I didn't know if this movie was doing the same for emo music because it does seem to be about how this town is not cool. How even like Adam Brody is lying that he's like, Oh, I'm from Brooklyn when he's really from a town a lot like this one. So it would make sense to me if this lame band would come and it would still be the biggest thing in that town because I'm from a town. I've lived in towns like that where it's like anything is happening. Therefore, it is cool. 
I think it's having fun with this idea that that is cool or that is this or, you know, like the lameness. There are always going to be lame bands, right? Like, um, or at least we're still at a point where like music like this is something, but I think it's also like someone going like, and it sucks. Like, I think they are saying, and it sucks, but it's popular, right? So I think it is doing what you're saying. It's it's having its cake and eating it too, which I think is actually really great. Like, it's sort of like, yeah, yes, why are we like this music? It's terrible. But yeah. you do, you like it, and you want to, like, and <laughs> and and, uh, and, yeah. and we're all on board with it. We all well, are and, on board that, yeah. And besides Adam Brody, like, that band behind him is actually, like, a real band. Like, I think they had, like, a song competition or something. Like, submit a song to be this band in this movie. And a band called Test Your Reflex won. Like, they wrote the Tree song, and it became the song. Um, and they are a real band. Like, this is an Alice song that they had come out around the same time. It's catchy. Yeah. Well, and that singer, you see that singer in the movie. Like the band members start, they play the band in the movie behind Adam Brody, which I think is very sweet. And look, uh, I, I'm a big Weezer fan, or I was a big Weezer fan. Um, and I remember Rivers Cuomo uh, was saying, oh, I can create a hit song every single time. I know the the magic to it, right? And what it, what it is from a note perspective. And... And and for every album they would release, he'd get about the the first one, the Rick Ocasek one that Rick Ocasek produced is, you know, full of bangers. Uh, I think Pinkerton is a great album. Uh, but then the rest, like you just see, like he knows how to at least stay relevant and pop one out uh, every single time. And then you start to see like that was an era, this is before this movie, but like where it was like, okay, Liz Fair, she's indie, she's cool, but she partnered up with the same people who did like Ashley Simpson's music. And then she had like an album full of like top 40 hits. Like there is a system to crack in that thing. And I think that, you know, this song sounds like it, it went through that system. I mean, it's, it, it, it sounds good. It doesn't sound like a movie. It doesn't sound like a a shitty version of a movie trying to make that song. It actually sounds like you could hear that on radio and be successful. But you know what? I do think that actually even just talking about the music is a great example of how I feel like something in this film gets a little bit lost in that it tries to have it both ways because it's a movie about emo music, you know, very Mm -hmm. pointedly like first, first decade of the 21st century emo music. And yet it takes its title from, you know, a whole song from, you know, 90s riot girl pure anger, you know, from this song. maybe doesn't exist. In, I mean, they, A, they don't play that song in this movie. You know, they play a different whole song, which I'm not going to complain about because Violet is actually my favorite oh, whole song. I love that. But that song doesn't fit the rest of the entire film. Whole doesn't fit in this movie. No. Whole, it's like Whole fuels Diablo, but Whole is not in this movie. Whole to me is a great, what I love about Whole, uh, I've, I saw them live twice and uh, they were great. Uh, what I love about Whole though is like, what a great way to end the movie. Because that's the new, that's the voice that's coming out. She gets in that car, the post credit scene where she does uh, as act her revenge. But the, um, but like that's, that is like, I don't have to be pretty. I don't have to be 
anything, I am so confident in myself. And I almost feel like that song at the end is such a pointed moment because it's like, and now I've arrived. Yeah. Even you know, though like, I don't believe for a second that Needy or Jennifer knows who Hole is. Because I mean, one of the like, running yes. jokes of this movie is that they've never heard of anything. Well, I mean, yeah, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is like a boxing movie. Yeah, I mean, it's great. But I think that, you, you know, but I think that that's the director saying it. You know, I think it's the director saying, like, this is a great song for, and and not done cheesily, like, over a transformation. You know, it's like, it is, it is like, I feel like it's like the ride off to the sunset song, which I kind of like. I really do like the way they, yeah. they walk it off like that. <laughs> Amy, there's so much here in this movie that I just want to, like, open it up for us to, are there things that are just random thoughts that are on our mind? We may have no connective tissue to them, but, like, let's just drop them here. Anything that we are thinking about that we haven't gotten to, because we really have gone all over the map, and I, I really enjoyed this conversation. But I also feel like there are some banging, like, hanging participles <laughs> that we haven't really knocked out. You know, I feel like if we do have, like, a scattershot things all over the map, that's actually kind of in keeping with this film itself. I think I feel like this film is very all over the map. One, actually, one I do have is, like, you know, I looked into what a succubus was because mm-hmm. I, so I, did I. Like, yeah, and that the history of succubus is so fascinating that it is like this, you know, it is a female who sucks, you know, men's love and vitality and like blood, uh, but it comes from this really interesting feminist origin that like the word succubus means to lie beneath. Like it literally means to be like a woman underneath a man, a woman getting like boned by a man. And apparently I did not know this, but like in the garden of Eden, Adam had a first wife and his first wife was Lilith. And they have a fight right away where Lilith is like, we're equals. And Adam says, no, you're in the bottom position. I am the superior one. And Lilith is like, fuck you. And she has sex with an archangel. And then she becomes a succubus and like, is this like succubus finger figure. And then like leaves Eden and is like, I'm not going to be in Eden anymore. Like I'm not doing this. And I think that is so funny. I like that a lot. <laughs> and so, yeah. So I think that fits so much. I just thought like, I guess I kind of assumed Succubus was just like, I don't know, we're trying to think of a female monster. That's one that we hear of and they grabbed for it. But I think there is a lot of like actual, actual resonance in this idea of like Jennifer becoming a Succubus. Well, you know, there's something I wanted to talk about too that I thought was interesting. Um, this opening line of the movie, which is like, uh, hell is a teenage girl, right? And that was a play on... Jean-Paul Sartre's quote, which is like, hell is other people, which is kind of misquoted and misinterpreted, you know, uh, a lot. But like, a lot of people try to always break down, like, well, what does he mean by like, hell is other people? I think we just go like, well, that's just like getting along is that. But what he meant, because he actually went on to kind of say what he meant, which was, if relations with someone are twisted or faulty, then that other person can only be hell. Why? Because when we think about ourselves, when we try to know ourselves, we use the knowledge of us, which other people already have. We judge ourselves with the means other people have given us for judging ourselves. And I think that that's actually really interesting. It's like the way that we act in the world, in a way, is a personification of what other people have like labeled us. Like we fall into that pattern. You know, we were talking about that with like, oh, you're sexy. So let's take you put you in your underwear and take a picture and eat whipped cream, you know, or, you're, you know, it's like this idea that you are a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you're caught in this like eternal trap. And, you know, I think uh, with this idea of being a teenage girl, it's like, well, that it's hard because you don't even know what you want to be yet. And I feel like it's, that's like, this is a coming of age story in a way 
of like getting out of just being a teenage girl. I think that's a really interesting idea that's in there. And again, you know, you can go deeper, but I, but I do think that that, <laughs> that, uh, that idea is, uh, is out in front. Well, and you know what I find so mystifying is that when you go back to 2009 and people are talking about this movie, they're, uh, they're talking about it primarily in the context of Twilight. Yeah. As though like people saw this movie about like kind of creepy things happening to girls in high school and Twilight was the only possible connection they could make. And it feels so random to me because like coming from this distance, I'm like, I don't see these two movies being alike in the slightest. They mm. don't feel at all alike to me. And But it was like there was this reaction to to, to, to Twilight, you know, how people were just like, Twilight is popular, Twilight is for girls, Twilight sucks. You know, which um, Alex Pabanamis has this podcast called The Big Hit Show, and he like got really into like the Twilight reaction. But I feel like Jennifer's body got this spillover Twilight hostility that I find to be so fascinating. It's kind of like, it reminds me of when we talked about Wizard of Oz. And when you go back to like reviews from that time period, everybody calls Wizard of Oz a Snow White knockoff. And you're like, what? But like in the moment, everybody felt like it was. Oh, interesting. Right? Do you remember that? And I, I, I feel yeah. like I felt that here going back to this. They're like, there's blood in girls. We have no real parallels for that. So we will say these two things that have these two things in them are alike. Are alike. You're like, what? I mean, <laughs> totally, totally different. Totally, totally. I mean, poor Bella is not a person who has any female friends. Um, but I guess you wouldn't really know that even from watching the trailers of this movie, which like completely cut Amanda Seyfried out of everything. Uh one other random thing that we should talk about right before we read the bad reviews, because the bad reviews are very bad. This film is still considered very rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, mm-hmm. um, is a huge thing happened, you know, less than two weeks before this movie came out, which has, you know, since been referred to as Hitlergate. Mm. Do you remember how bad this was um, uh, that Megan Fox gave an interview to a magazine? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. That she said of Bay, he's like Napoleon. He wants to create this insane, infamous madman reputation. He wants to be like Hitler on his sets, and he is. Uh, This came out two weeks before this movie came out, this quote. And Michael Bay got furious, you know, like, publicly told GQ that Megan Fox was just lazy, said that Spielberg said that they should fire her immediately from like the third Transformers movie, which Spielberg later denied. Um, But in this firestorm that started over the Hitler comment, um, everybody basically did back bay over, over Megan Fox, you know, like, you know, everybody was just sort of like, ah, that's the guy, that's where the money is. And like kind of took his side, but it got really crazy, you know, because Michael Bay in the middle of this firestorm on his own website, had his crew members write a quote unquote, like anonymous letter, an open letter on his website, like making fun of, of, of Megan Fox. Um, Here are some excerpts from it. They basically call her like an ungrateful, ungracious, unappreciative, unfriendly bitch. There's a line where they uh, like imply she needs to smile more. Uh, They call her a Miss Princess. They call her a Mrs. Sour Pants. They call her the queen of talking trailer trash. Uh, The letter makes fun of her for having a quote unquote rotten childhood. It says that her acting is cringeable. It says that quote, being a porn star in the future might be a good career option. And it frames Michael Bay as this hero who quote, found this shy, inexperienced girl plucked her out of total obscurity where she became one of the most Googled and oogled women on earth as though she was enjoying that process of being the most Googled and oogled woman on earth, but she kind of really wasn't. Um, There are, there is a very strong theory that 
Michael Bay wrote this letter himself because nobody's ever come forward to say they wrote this letter, you know, and posted on his own website, of course. But then for plausible deniability, he released a statement on his own same website being like, I don't condone that crew letter to Megan, but I don't condone Megan's outlandish uh, quotes as well. And this, that, that whole firestorm happened exactly one week before this movie was released. So people were primed to see, you know, her first star vehicle as like this girl who can't act. You know, like nobody thinks this girl can act. All of these men are mad at her. I mean, basically what happened to her is not that different from what happened to like Katherine Heigl at the same time, you know, when she was like knocked up as a little bit sexist and literally everybody lost their minds. It was like, what? How dare she? Like, it's really a repetition of that same thing. Um, but yeah, what I want to kind of add is like in this whole firestorm, what kind of got lost uh, was her full quote, which was she was bringing up Michael Bay's personality on sets as a way of talking about how unsafe she felt on these sets. She said, Shia and I almost die when we make a Transformers movie. Michael Bay has you do some really insane things that insurance would let you would never let you do. He's like Napoleon. He wants to be insane. So she was using that in this context of like, his sets are very, very, very dangerous places. Let me try to talk out about that. And that basic idea is what really got lost, which is like, really fascinating because she's not wrong. Like she gets fired from the third Transformers because she said the tone on set was so awful that she just couldn't be there anymore. There's some debate. Did she fire? Did she get quit? Either way, she like leaves the third Transformers and on the third Transformers set, because of the way his, his stunts were being shot, a female extra did get like seriously hurt. She got hit by like a flying metal cable. Uh, She was airlifted to the hospital. She had huge, significant brain damage and like, you know, DreamWorks and Paramount said they'd cover her medical bills. They didn't cover her medical bills. And then finally, two years later, when she sued, a judge awarded her $18.5 million. That's how badly she was hurt on this set. And Megan Fox wasn't wrong to try to say that his sets were very, very dangerous. And nobody heard that part of her quote. And I yep. find that fascinating. I mean, that, you, know, you try to speak out for safety and nobody hears that. And instead, it, I think it actually really said that's kind of the last domino that I think really affected people seeing this movie with an open heart and really, I think, hurt her whole career. I, I agree. And, I, you know, I just want to say one other thing. And I know we just this is like in our grab bag of thoughts. And it's a big one. But, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about who you put power over. And I think sometimes it's like, who's the most dominant person in the room, right? So it's like, all right, so if it's all men running the room, you could be dominant over women, right? If it's all, you know, it's like you can get, like, you just keep on going down. And I think there's something really interesting about this first kill that they have in Jennifer's body, which is this foreign exchange student. Like they refer to him as like the kid from India, right? Like they don't, they don't know anything about him. He is yeah. also just a thing. He is just the foreign exchange student. That was the first person that she attacks. And I do think it's an interesting idea, like the movie does start on that trickle down thing. Like, you know, he's he wandering around hurt and bloodied and dazed and she takes advantage of him. And it's like, I think this idea that we are always attacking a person lower than us because when you do attack high, sometimes high can come down on you hard. Uh, and, you know, it, we are living in a different time right now where I think that some people have stood up and um, made their voice heard about some people in bigger positions. And that's been a big part of this Me Too movement. But I, I think for a long time, it, like the, the self-perpetuating cycle is like, 
everyone has their person that they kind of pick on. And I think that that's, uh, you know, that that is always kind of happening uh, no matter what, you know. So it's not yeah. like, you know, she's not killing all these guys that just want to fuck her. She's also at that point, she's just like, I need to live. So I'm going to, yeah. you know, I'm taking this person. No, you're right. And killing Ahmed, I think, kind of complicates any attempt to read this as like a straight up yay for her, get it, girl, girl power killing thing. Yeah. Because yeah. like he didn't do anything to her. This isn't a movie where like every guy is a bad guy and she's killing them just because mm-hmm. she's just killing the guys and yeah. like killing Ahmed. It, there's no real justification for that. And I almost I wish agree. that moment hit harder because it should be really, really tragic. Like I find, I find Colin's death sad because he actually seems to kind of like her. Like if they, if she would talk to him like a human being, they might actually get along. Well, you know, and right? also like, yeah, there's a comic yeah. book all about her victims' lives. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's an interesting yeah. point of view too. But it's kind of like, yeah. yeah, kind of that idea that they do in uh, Austin Powers where they show like the guy who just immediately gets killed in one scene, like he has a wife and kid at home, you know, it's like, Aww. yeah, you know, we don't think about all this stuff, but, um, <laughs> but to but, that yeah. point, people, to that point of people deciding that something is okay to, okay to attack critics definitely were like, this movie is going to be great to attack. I can't wait to take out my knives. They really went after this one. Um, it here is one of the reviews of Jennifer's body from The Times. This movie is a spectacular disaster. The kind of thing a cat might bury in a litter box and still keep building it, the covering for because the stench cannot be smothered. This film is the product of the quote-unquote girl power team of director Karen Kusama and writer Diablo Cody. Neither has previously dabbled in horror and based on the evidence at hand in Jennifer's body, neither should be allowed near it again. The film's central attraction, and some might argue its only attraction, is Megan Fox. Uh, Before this, we have had little indication whether Fox is just another well-toned body or whether she has some acting chops to go with the grade A abs. Her acting is plastic and one-dimensional. The filmmaker should have chosen Paris Hilton instead of Amanda Seyfried because a Seyfried can act, and her ability makes Fox's deficiencies more glaring. At least Eli Roth understood that B-grade horror comedies could go all out when it comes to gratuitous elements, gore, violence, sex, nudity... I assume the decision to avoid TNA is Kusama's, since there are several scenes in the film where flesh could have easily easily been shown, and one would assume, based on her past, that Cody has no problem with nudity. The movie is a trial to sit through, reminding us that just because something looks delicious doesn't mean the taste won't be rancid. If you're in search for a way to ogle Megan Fox's body, there are a lot better ways to do it than subjecting yourself to this. Well, there you go. I mean, look, I, I think we kind of broke it all down like you know <laughs> it, there there is something about this movie where we talk about this a lot it's satire what am i seeing it's not too much of this it's not too you know it's and 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 i know i've gone back and forth you know on on both sides let's be like well it's not it's not enough of a satire i think this movie is saying a lot of stuff i just don't think we were ready to hear it when it came out and i actually think the fact that it's become uh not even a cult hit but like a true hit 10 years later just speaks to the timelessness of the ideas in here. And, uh, and it just, I think elevates Diablo Cody even more. I know a lot of people said, why aren't you doing the invitation? And I think this is a more, I do inter- like the invitation. It's great. I think yeah. this is a more interesting movie. I think there's a lot more on the bone here as far as 
a moment before the moment, but is still relevant in the moment, but also is incredibly entertaining too. And yes, there are some sides of it that are a little rough around the edges, but I would argue this is one of the, you know, greatest uh, Megan Fox performances. And, you know, as far as like uh, Amanda Seyfried, like to have Mean Girls and this like coming out, and I think those movies even reference each other here. And like her career is really interesting and and what she's been doing even in the the recent like... um, the um, Elizabeth Holmes TV show that she did for Hulu. Like she's a very interesting performer as well. And I I feel like that is something that people don't talk about that much. I hopefully get a little bit more uh, justice for Seafried. Yeah. I really love Seafried as an actor. And I, I I mean, you're right that I think this is the best Megan Fox movie performance because she didn't really get any other ones that were like leads built around her. And I feel like that is a shame I would have liked to see what she would have done if somebody else had kept writing stuff for her. That was this mm-hmm. interesting, but it didn't really happen. Um, and I will say like, they, they talk now still a little bit like what if Jennifer's body was a TV show? What if it was a TV show? And I wonder if the TV show would be better than I feel like this movie is because I do feel so frustrated that this movie, I think doesn't explore its ideas. It just sort of scatters them around like apple seeds and says, if anything take, takes root. And I wish that I wish it went a little deeper, but I love everything that's in it. You know, so I feel like I guess there's like that frustration of being like it's there, but not there. And I feel like in TV form or even if they just rewrote this script, I feel like it would all be there. Yeah, I, I don't I wouldn't want to see it as a TV show. That's my opinion. I, I just think it's it, it's there's a version of this movie that you could maybe make a little bit better. Right. Uh, maybe right, but um, uh, but I also, I also kind of feel like it's a it's a closed story. I think you need. I, I think if it went on for too long, it would I, I would get tired of it. I think there's not that much meat on the bone. I don't know. That's, that's, fair. that's well, you know. and maybe right now in 2022 we don't need it. I think maybe we're getting enough stories like this that people are that are talking about the same things and are being like seen for what they are. And maybe and maybe. Truthfully, if you made it now, people would be too aware of it and wouldn't let it be as subtle as it is, you know, and I think that that's an interesting thing, too. It's like, oh, no, we get need to hit this harder. You know, I think we have this ability to over explain and over, you know, underline everything. And there's something about that. where I'm like, you know what? Maybe because it was sneaky, it got to be a lot more clever and it doesn't have to be perfect, but it definitely got through without you know, without getting bad notes. <laughs> um, okay, Paul, we have talked about the succubus. We've talked about succubi throughout history. But what if our next killer was something that really has yet to be explained, no matter how many times they've tried to make a movie explaining it? What if we did Michael Myers in Halloween? Wait a second. That's how that's your intro to it. You said what well, I, I thought we were going to have like a rhyme with succubus or something, a <laughs> pun. You just said, what if I was going to say, hey, we talked about final girls. Uh, but here's the person who started the final girls off. Jamie Lee Curtis in 1978's Halloween. You know, I, I was I was waiting for a bigger build up there. You really you got me on the hook. Uh, well, uh, say something that rhymes with succubus. Um, like, oh man, uh, Shatner puss. Hey, so you'd be like this. Hey, uh, we talked about succubuses, but now we're going to talk about Shatner's puss. William Shatner's face, which was used as the mask for Halloween. 
Anyway, let's get into it. That's kind I of segues that we can. I can't believe you just rescued that. That's <laughs> amazing. Well done, sir. Yeah, well, I mean, Shatner's <laughs> puss did sound actually a lot worse than uh, than that if you didn't know all the uh, the ins and outs. But anyway, I'm excited. Uh, I the know ins that and you, outs of Shatner's puss. Yes. <laughs> well, look, I know that you obviously have talked about Halloween at length, uh, and I'm excited to, you know, do it all in in one hour and see what you know. Look. What we what we both come to it uh, with, you know, with some new eyes, some different times, because really like Halloween has made a big comeback in these last couple of years. I'm excited. It's been I don't even know three years since I did my miniseries on on Halloween. And in those three years, I have purposely not watched that movie because I saw it so much in the making of the show. So I'm excited to revisit it with fresh, fresh eyes. I like putting a movie down and then picking it back up when the time is right. Kind of like Michael Myers going down and then coming back up when the time is right. Well, I mean, he always is coming right back up. Anyway, let's take a listen to the trailer. Halloween night. A small American town. 15 years ago. Eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Halloween is available wherever you get your streaming uh, films. I mean, this is an easy one to find. You can get it all over the place, but definitely check out your local public library. There's a lot of great digital resources. You get these things for free. All you have to do is like download an app. That's it. You live in a community. You got it. You're done. Uh, so Amy, I'm so excited to chat with you about Halloween. I'm excited for the new Halloween, the, the, the final chapter for now. Cause I imagine in about three years, you know, someone's going to reboot it. Who knows who, but, uh, I'm excited to see maybe it's Michaela Cole. will come back with a new Halloween and I'd be psyched to see that I'm in. We should do a horror mini, I think, at the end of Halloween season of like the horror movies that have come out this year. That yes. smile, barbarian. I want to talk about these with you. I am so down to do that. And we can also talk about Hellraiser 2022, uh, which I will be uh, watching and uh, very open to changing my opinion on the Hellraiser franchise. <sighs> Your neck is wide open and gaping with pins stuck in it. And oh, my gosh. Ideas are oh just going to go right inside oh, you. Oh, smell that vanilla. <laughs> um, all right, Amy, we will see everybody next week. And make sure that you visit our uh, Tee Public store. where We have a bunch of new designs coming in. We did actually make the Florence Pew 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 uh, shirt. So that is available. Uh, we have new things coming up for the holidays. A big thank you to our producers, uh, Josh Richmond, Devin Bryant, our audio engineer, uh, Ryan Connor, and of course, our brand new intern, uh, Cece, and our producer, Molly Reynolds. We have so many great people here uh, working on the show, and we will be back next week to chat with you more. <laughs>